morning, everyone. It's nice to be here. And um, I just by way of explanation, before we actually start, um, I was reading the email last night about the directions and everything. I suddenly realized there were going to be kids in this morning. So I've had to moderate some of the images I was going to use in terms of the talk this morning, because I want to have a real preach about some very real things that are happening in the world. And um, I have done this at City Church. I've used a different passage to talk about this. But um, so, so I've just moderated some of the kind of images and some of the language. But I'll tell you when I'm, when I'm using what's kind of down here, um, if that's okay. So we're going to look at Psalm 18. But if we were to look at the entire psalm, we would be doing one verse every 30 seconds. So it's going to be the first three verses um, that we look at. And there's enough in there for us to, to um, do what we need to do. Um, it's a great psalm. It's the fourth longest psalm in the Bible. And it's a psalm that um, happens uh, to be written uh, at the time of a great victory for David. It's also repeated in... Um, in 2 Samuel 22, so if you want to look at it there, it's been moderated a bit when it gets there because he's, um, he's committed a few sins by then, so he's, it's slightly different. Um, let's read through these first three verses, and then we're going to pray. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for this great psalm. We pray that we might get something from this this morning, and I ask if there was ever a sermon that the preacher needed to preach to himself, this is one. And I just pray, God, that we might all be blessed. We might have our eyes open to the reality of our world. And we might be inspired as to who you are, Lord God, and your great delivering power in your name. Amen. So this is a picture of uh, me and my wife Cindy in Argentina in 1996. We, we were in a, a, a conference there. And uh, we're in our late 30s in this image. Now, 10 years earlier to this, I was uh, struggling with alcoholism. And Cindy had stuck by me and had prayed for three years for me to become a Christian. And she got me here. And she keeps me grounded in reality. That's the kind of relationship we have. Um, today is 20 years on from that picture. We've had a few successes. Uh, we've also experienced difficulty and failure in what we've done. We've seen people come to Christ in the past, but we've also overseen church closure. We've made numerous attempts to church plant. Uh, we sold our belongings and property and moved to Sunderland in obedience, only to see no fruit from our efforts. Don't worry, it gets better. Uh, God has delivered us from a series of really difficult situations and brought us to City Church to serve there. And we know there's still much, much more for us to do. 
Um, now, in obedience, in, in obedience to God and out of love for him, we will still keep trying. This is a picture of how margin will be in 15 <laughs> years' time. If we make it that far, we'll still be trying. Cindy will be keeping me right and making sure I don't go off the rails again, hopefully. So, um, it says a good God can draw a man into a church, but sometimes it takes a good woman to hold him there. I'm just looking around this morning. Any hands on shoulders? Anything like that going on? Um, when David says, I will love you, Lord, it's not a faith statement. David said, I will love you to the God who delivered him, not only for rescuing him from his trial, but for all God did in and through the trials to make him what he was. David wasn't bitter against God, as if he said, well, it's about time you delivered me, God. Instead, he was grateful that the years of trouble had done something good and necessary in his life. Now, this psalm is written just before his enthronement as king. David has just been victorious over Saul, and he's come through years of difficulty, about 20 years worth, since he was anointed by Samuel is when the psalm was written. But it's worth noting that a very short time before it was written, he was thinking things were very different to what they were. He's crying out to God in desperation and facing severe opposition. And we can see this in 1 Samuel 27. Here's David, David thinking to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. This is what he was thinking. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. Off he goes. I get that impression of him skulking off like that. But, so something quite significant has happened uh, in between. The fact is, though, that being obedient to God, and being a Christian in this day and age, preaching the gospel brings opposition, and in some countries it brings persecution. The fact is that just being a Christian in some countries today is a deathly business. Just declaring you are a Christian can result in your death in some countries. <clears throat> now this is not an old problem. Many Christians throughout the world today are dying for their faith and for the gospel. But you wouldn't think that if you listen to the news. I want to read you something from a Spectator article that was written around about last year. Imagine if correspondence in late 1944 had reported the Battle of the Bulge, but without explaining that it was a turning point in the Second World War? Or what if finance reporters had told the story of the AIG meltdown in 2008 without adding that it raised questions about derivatives and subprime mortgages that could bring about a vast financial implosion? So imagine if the, the financial crisis we've recently been enduring they didn't report all of the facts about that. Most people would say the journalist had failed to provide the proper context to understand the news, yet that's routinely what media outlets do when it comes to outbreaks of anti-Christian persecution around the world, which is why the global war on Christians remains the greatest story never told of the early 21st century. According to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular observatory based in Frankfurt, Germany, 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. T 
Statistically speaking, that makes Christians by far the most persecuted religious body on the planet. Now I wonder, should any of us die for our faith? Is it a requirement? Would any of us die for our faith? Would we, would we do that here this morning? Would you be willing to die for the sake of the gospel? I want to just go through some examples of persecution. And uh, I've moderated some of these images. Um, just, you'll see, th- this, is the, this is fine, this is the original one. So, do you know somebody called Abigail Bukar or Antonia Johanna? These are names of, the two, of two of the 180 mostly Christian girls kidnapped by Boko Haram on the 14th of April last year in Nigeria. Boko Haram means Western education is forbidden. And their leader said, I will sell them in the market by Allah. I will sell them off and marry them off. Women are slaves. I want to reassure my Muslim brothers that Allah says slaves are permitted in Islam. That's a quote from the the leader of Boko Haram. In North Korea, believe it or not, North Korea is the top of the world league when it comes to the persecution of Christians. The rule of Kim Jong-un and his workers' party is absolute and strict. No one is allowed or able to challenge or question the rule. It's based on communist ideas and is inextricably tied with a dominant personality cult. So you see, if Jesus is Lord, he can't be. Um, All forms of worship not concentrated on the Kim dynasty are seen as dangerous and state-threatening. Christians face the highest imaginable pressure, and every entity the government is not able to control will be eradicated. They put them in forced labour camps where they are treated worse than animals. Now in Somalia, it's particularly bad. I've moderated this image. I've just replaced it with a woman crying. The original image has more than that in it. Um, And I'm now going to moderate some of the language here. You'll just have to try and fill in some gaps. I can talk to you later if you want. Muslims in Somalia seized two Christians, a mother of two daughters and a cousin, and after calling the entire village to gather together, they killed them in cold blood. The Muslims were so absent of shame that they even had the woman's two daughters, ages 8 and 15, Watch this. The mother's name was Sadia Ali Omar, and the cousin who was killed was Osman Mohammed Mog. These are real people. The eight-year-old daughter wept and begged for someone to save their mother, but nobody came. And the two innocent girls had no choice but to endure the sight of their beloved being killed. Before they killed them, the Muslims proclaimed, We know these two people are Christians who recently came back from Kenya. We want to wipe out any underground Christian living inside of Mujahideen area. Now what can we do about this is the question. What on earth can we do? Christians in Iraq and Syria are under grave threat as a jihadist group the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant or ISIS expands its territory imposing strict Sharia laws 
Christians are giving three classic choices. I don't know if you know this is how it works. You get these three choices in Islam if you're a Christian. One, you convert to Islam. Two, you pay a thing called jizya, which is a tribute or extortion money. If you want the reference in the Quran, it's 9.29. And they have to uphold all the conditions stipulated in the medieval conditions of Omar, which include heavy restrictions on Christian worship. Or three, they get killed. The list of persecutions against Christians in the world today is endless. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves, what can we do about this? Have you ever been persecuted for being a Christian? I have a couple of really tiny little minor stories. Um, there was a, a guy I worked with a long time ago, um, in a, in a, well, I used to sell computers, and when I rang up his company one time, this was a long time after, he'd, he'd found out I was, I was a Christian, and he was singing down the phone, hallelujah, and all this behind the scenes, and shouting and bawling at me about my Christianity on the end of a phone. So a little bit of a verbal abuse, nothing really too much. The guy from school, when I was at school, um, when I first became a Christian, I was about 15, and uh, he decided, there's a whole bunch of us, that he would lash us with um, branches that he pulled off trees. We were in a boarding school. Um, and contrary to popular opinion, that kind of stuff doesn't kind of go on as a regular thing. But um, he decided that that's what he would do. He's actually from Whitley Bay, believe it or not. But we were down in Surrey, and uh, he decided to lash us all with huge branches. So just for being a Christian. Now, I've done some other stuff with kids and that, and I've been punched a few times, kicked, you know, that kind of stuff. Not given work because I've declared I, I'm a Christian probably things which are illegal, but, you know, just try challenging that. Now, they're nothing. People all over the world are being persecuted and dying for the faith, but the UK and US media continually hides the real story. Nine out of the top worst states for Christian persecution are Islamic, and the top one is atheist. So that there are people I know that go, go on holiday to some of these places. So, for example, the Maldives go on holiday. You don't think that's number seven in the world for persecution against Christians. Uh, in spiritual terms, the problem of evil or the Satan can invent or even piggyback on any world religion. This is my belief. Can piggyback on any world religion or ideology to cause havoc. We have to see behind the people. You know, our battle is a spiritual one. As Christians, we call to love and pray for our enemies to turn the other cheek. That's what I did when I was beaten with sticks in, in school. But in the UK, despite a spiritual battle and a continued move towards secularism, we are not, I repeat, not being persecuted. And so as we are going about our daily lives, we should be bold and take the gospel to the people of this country. That's what we should do. We should be bold and take the gospel to the people of the United Kingdom, especially while there's such a leadership vacuum in our government. Now, it doesn't matter what political persuasion you are, there is a leadership vacuum in this country. And I believe that there is a vacuum that the church can fill with good leadership. The people of this nation are crying out inside their hearts. You might not hear it outside, 
But I assure you, people in this nation are crying out for God. And the church must declare the gospel of Christ more than she has ever done before. Let me just read something from uh, the former Archbishop of Country, Rowan Williams. Christians in, uh, this is an article in the Guardian newspaper last year. Christians in Britain and the US who claim that they are persecuted should grow up and not exaggerate at what amounts to feeling mildly uncomfortable. When you've had any contact with real persecuted minorities, you learn to use the word very chastely, he said. Persecution is not being made to feel mildly uncomfortable. For goodness sake, grow up, I want to say. True persecution was systematic brutality and often murderous hostility. That means that every morning you wonder if you and your children are going to live through the day. He cited the experience of a woman he met in India who'd seen her husband killed by a mob. He added, speaking from the Christian tradition, the idea that being spiritual is just about having nice experiences is rather laughable. Most people who have written seriously about the life of the Spirit in Christianity spend a lot of their time telling you how absolutely awful it is. In other words, the idea that we want to be like the biblical heroes such as David and have the life of the Spirit doesn't take us to a place where we judge whether we have that spiritual life by how many spiritual gifts we have or how much God has changed us or how nice we are or even how nice our life is it takes us instead to a place of personal sacrifice, a place of servanthood, a place where the Holy Spirit moves us in love to respond to the cry of the lost and the anguish of the poor, a place where we are following Jesus, a place where we too lay down our lives because of him. It leads us to kneel at the cross of Christ and it leads us to humble ourselves in that place every single day. It leads us to a life of prayer of communion with God and in community with each other. And it's great to be here today from City Church. We shouldn't be living out our spirit-filled Christian life in front of the latest Christian TV or internet channel or on our own or in our own way, as people often say to me. I'm living out my Christian life in my own way. Don't do that. Your own way is probably the wrong way. Live it out together. Now this is what David's life looks like if we think about this psalm. He is a young shepherd boy who's taken from the hillside and anointed king by Samuel the prophet. He fought a lion and a bear who came to destroy a lamb of his fold. He fought the terrifying Goliath. He was pursued and persecuted by King Saul and the Lord delivered him from all of those situations. He sought refuge among strangers and he found protection. The king of Moab behaved to him with kindness. He was in danger among the Philistines, and the Lord kept him. No Moabites, nor Ammonites, nor Syrians of different kingdoms could stand before David, either singly or together, because the Lord taught him how to deal with those situations. Evil rose up against him out of his own kingdom, and out of his own house, through Sheba and Absalom. He was sometimes almost overwhelmed by fear and dejection of spirit. This idea that we have of these kind of heroes of the faith and, and senior leaders and churches as being these fantastically switched on people 
Believe me, what you don't see is the tears in the study on their own trying to make things happen, trying to get God to do something about every situation. He was often in great bodily distress, but he cried unto the Lord and was healed and delivered. He was afflicted by his own sin, particularly in the case of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Now if I look at David's troubles and difficulties, and I look at my own life as a Christian, I have to concede this. I have to concede it, as Rowan Williams said, in comparison, my life is laughable. There's a book I like to read now and again. It's called Fox's Martyrs. It was written in the 1500s. And it tells the story of many Christian martyrs who were killed for their faith. Note, they don't commit suicide for their faith. They're killed for their faith. There's a massive difference. Now, there's an example I wanted to read, which happened under Emperor Marcus Aurelius in AD 161. But I'm not going into the graphic detail of this that I have written in front of me here. You can find out later how the people were killed. I'm just going to tell you that they were killed. Uh, Felicitatis. This is a quote from the book, Fox's Martyrs. But I'm not going to... I'm going to put some different words in. Felicitatis, an illustrious Roman lady of a considerable family, and the most shining virtues, was a devout Christian. She had seven sons, whom she had educated with the most exemplary piety. You can tell it was written in the 1500s. Januarius, the eldest, was killed. Felix and Philip, the two next, were killed. Silvanus, the fourth, was killed. And the three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Marshall, were killed. The mother was killed in the same way as the three latter. Now, what is shocking about this isn't what I've just said. It's the method of how that happened, which is what I can see here. Um, if someone, and this is because they were Christians, if someone were to write a new version of Fox's Martyrs for the contemporary Western Christian, I wondered what it would look like. So this is a cartoon ad, just to make a point. It's an American. It's Americans talking about Americans. So I'm hoping there's no Americans in today. And if there is, I'm sorry. It's saying, if there was a new book of martyrs, it would be very thin. It says, uh, it would be a thin book, perfect for rolling up and using the smack whiny Christians upside the head. That's what it says. But I'm sure we in the UK can be like this too. I'm sure if we were all to get together and write a similar thing, we could come up with a few things that are everyday occurrences, but we think we're under some kind of major spiritual attack or even persecuted. Now, what do you think? Would you like some based on real examples? These are some things people have said to me in churches. These are Christians talking to me. So one guy who was doing some worship leading for me for a particular prayer meeting I was running, for the whole church, was really annoyed because I'd cut him off uh, when the spirit was flowing, whatever that means, um, in his words. And he said to me, if only I could lead worship more, you know, if he could lead worship more, we'd feel more of the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, fantastic. Well, you come later, we'll have another meeting. Why don't you come and lead worship? That would help us so much. He said... Well, I'm not coming to the prayer meeting later because there's football on. Or how about this? This is a real, this is a real one as well. 
as the woman says, Satan is really attacking me. I keep getting these headaches all day long. But what she doesn't tell you is all she does all day long is sit on Facebook. So I think there's a connection between the two things. Sitting in front of a computer screen and getting those headaches. Or this one. The Volvo wouldn't start. And it's not a thing against people with Volvos, by the way. The Volvo wouldn't start and I couldn't get to the meeting until after coffee. I had to call the AA. I missed the worship. I'm in a real battle here. These are actual genuine examples of Christians who think they're struggling through life. Now, I'm not saying we should wish this upon ourselves. I'm not saying we should wish upon ourselves that we're being dealt with like Christians in other countries. But it's not much fun thinking of ourselves like this. It might be fair. It might be a little bit unfair. We're not being persecuted in the UK. We don't know how we'd respond if we, we were. We might be really brilliant. But it's kind of not the point. My point isn't just about what we should do about worldwide persecution. I can't speak for anybody else. But all things considered, I don't really think that I'm laying my life down for the sake of the gospel as I should. And I don't know either way if I'd literally die for my faith. It's hard to know unless the situation arises. We don't know what we would do or what we wouldn't do. But the situation maybe mostly doesn't arise because I probably haven't quite got past the whiny Christian who doesn't want to be rejected and have his feelings hurt and maybe a bit embarrassed to share the gospel thing. It would be better if I was more like David. Maybe if I was more like him and if I was truly after God's own heart and trying to live my life for Jesus more and shared the gospel more, I would be more opposed and even persecuted and then we'd see but my point is also that here in the West we are massively blessed with material wealth and freedom as Christians. Our situation is easy. And so we are in prime position for sharing the gospel. I'm not one of these who thinks persecution is the best way to spread the gospel. The gospel spread during the Pax Romana more than any other time when there was peace after the major persecutions um, of the first few centuries. Um, AD, the first few centuries AD, I should say. But mainly we are part of a worldwide family of God and those who don't have those freedoms and are facing impossible situations need us to do one thing. One thing. And the life of David in this psalm inspires us because in comparing our situation with David's situation where he is severely oppressed and pursued after he's been told he's been king, and with some of the other Christians in the world with ours, if God can give them strength and deliver them, he can easily do it with us. If God can deliver David from his situation, he can easily do it with our situation. So what do we do when we're faced with truly impossible situations? What happens when David is persecuted by his enemies? What should we do about the crisis in Syria? What should we do about Christians being persecuted all around the world? What should we do about the people around the world who are imprisoned for their faith? What should we do in the face of opposition to the gospel? We should do what David did. We should do what this whole psalm is about. Faced with his often dreadful predicament, he was moved to give the best response he could. And the best response is always to pray. 
to cry out to God. We think we can do so much ourselves. Our best response is to pray and cry out to God. It is the one thing you would not believe. I'm going off script now. You would not believe how difficult this is. City Church, big church in the centre of Newcastle, kind of medium size, we think of it. I'm trying to get the church to pray regularly. It is massively opposed. It's just really a difficult thing to do. You would think it would be easy for us. It is massively difficult to get City Church to get to a state where prayer is at the centre of our lives. It's opposed. It's massively difficult. And you would think it would be easy with Christians. The best response is always to pray, to cry out to God. And this psalm tells us that our God is the God who is our strength. Just in verse 2, you can see it. He's the one that empowers us to survive against and defeat our enemies. He is our rock, the one who gives us a place of shelter and a secure standing. He's our fortress, a place of strength and safety. He's our deliverer, the one who makes a way of escape from difficulty for us. He's our shield who defends both our head and our heart. Our God is our horn, and this is it, has in mind strength and defense. Our God is our stronghold. He's a place of sanctuary. He's our high tower of refuge where we can see our enemies from a great distance and be protected from our adversaries. In David's case, God delivered him many times as he cried out to him. And like David, we need God. And this is what I say at the City Church, and I'm saying to us here too. I worked it out in my head. It's not a good place to be all the time. But inside here, I went through every possible scenario I could think of. And as how, to, how do I take the gospel to a mosque? How do I take the gospel to a bunch of secular atheists in the university? How do I make inroads into those kind of places? How do we do it as churches? And the only thing I could come up with was, we need God. And because we need God, we need to pray. And God will answer our prayers. And if this psalm does anything, it proves that. David has been through a monstrous time, and God has delivered him. And when he writes this psalm, he is saying, I will love you, Lord. In spite of the fact he's been through all of those things, because God has taught him some things because of that. But look, I'm not one of these people who tells it all lovely and beautiful, as you can tell. But God does not always answer prayers like this. Some people are delivered directly from this world to the next. You just have to read Fox's Martyrs to see. Now, if you look at this number behind me, You've been watching the count, one, two, three, four, five, and you've been thinking, what's he doing? Has he missed a slide? Um, I wanted to make a point to you, and it's this. On average, five Christians have died under persecution in the time I've been preaching this sermon to you this morning. So while I've been stood here, in the world, five Christians have died under persecution. And there's another one. Like David, we need God. 
We're Christians. God has called us. He's called us to prayer. He's called us to bring the gospel to this nation. David gave the best response to achieve the impossible. That has and always will be the best response. He always called to the Lord in prayer and praise and worship. And as it says in the psalm, in verse 3, he was saved from his enemies. And like David, because we need God, our primary business these days has to be to pray. I say primary business, we have to do other things as well. But everything we do should come from that place of relationship with God and of prayer and of corporate prayer as well as individual prayer. I've set up five prayer initiatives in City Church. We've got 24-7 fasting. We've got uh, the weekly devoted meetings. We've got a, a team of people who respond to prayer requests all the time. And uh, we've got um, a number of other initiatives going on within the church. What I would really love to see is the whole of the church in the UK praying face-to-face with the people in their neighbourhood. That's what I would really love to see. Um, But we're a long, long way off that. I'd love to see the gospel going out. I'd love to see us crying out to God because we need leadership in this nation and the church, in my view, is the only place it can come from. And I want to ask you one final thing this morning, just in closing. I don't know who you are here this morning. I guess on this kind of day we would mostly be Christians, but you might not be, and I want to ask you this. Do you know him? Do you know this God who delivers us? You see, we, mankind, we have sinned. That just means we've rebelled against God. It's in us. It's part of us. It's like yeast in a batch of dough. We can't get that out of us. It's impossible. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ who died on a cross for our sin that we might be reconciled to him, that we might come to him. And all we have to do is repent. That just means um, God is over there behind me. I'm walking away from him. One day, it could be the day I turn around and I walk back towards God and I say, yes, I accept freely your free offer of salvation because God has made a way. The wrath of God is coming on mankind for our sin. That is a fact. That's what the Bible tells us. It's not just that we're nice people and we did a good thing by becoming Christians. What happened is, through Christ, God took all the wrath that was due on mankind and put it on him. It's called propitiation. It means a turning away of God's wrath onto the person of Jesus Christ. And our sin and the consequences of our sin are across his shoulders as he, as he hangs on a cross for us and bleeds and dies. And God is satisfied with that one sacrifice. And for us, it's very simple. If you're not a Christian here today, you can become one even this morning. And you can have this wonderful life that I've been talking about. You can become a Christian this morning and you too can take the gospel. You can become a follower of Jesus this morning. Do you know him? Do you know him? He might be calling to you this morning. I don't know who's here. 
I would love it if there was someone here this morning who's just thinking, you know what, I need to become a Christian today. And what's going to happen is later on, just as we're finished, I'm going to be hanging around. And if you want to do that, you just come see me or see one of your leaders and they will guide you through and help you to do that. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the life of David and the example it is. I want to thank you, Lord, that we as Christians sit and stand here today as your people. That we are given this precious gift of the gospel. I pray, Lord, we would take it to this nation. I pray, Lord, we would show leadership. I pray, Lord, that you would cause your church to come to you and cry out to you. That we might be changed as David was. That we might be seeing ourselves doing exploits as David was. I pray for this chapel here, Regent Chapel. I pray for the good folks here that this church would be added to. Lord God, that you would bring people in from the surrounding area. I pray for that it would flourish, Lord God. I ask, Lord Jesus, for your blessing on us here. And as we consider all the Christians in the city of Newcastle this morning and the surrounding region, we pray, Lord God, that we might be moved to bring your love and your compassion and your hope to a nation who is crying out for it, Lord God. I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.